Okay, praise God. Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read a few verses starting with verse 19. This is about the rich man and Lazarus. And we'll go from there. Luke 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, and you are tormented. Beside all this, between us, you there's a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from there then he said i pray thee therefore father that thou would send him to my father's house for i have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment abraham said to him they have moses and the prophets let them hear them he said nay father abraham but if one went to them from the dead they will repent he said unto him they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one, raise, one rose from the dead. Now this is, a, is an account of a, a rich man who ignored God. And so that's what we want to we wanna look at. And in a, a story like this, that's so serious... And uh, so sobering, we'll try to approach this in a uh, really, really grave way so that we'll walk away from here tonight thinking about the reality of heaven, the reality of hell. Let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, it is our privilege again to be able to break the bread of life. For a few moments as we look into these texts, we want you to speak to our hearts. We're grateful for redemption. We're happy that your son came and died on the cross for us, that we placed our faith in him, that we've got the safety and security of knowing that we can stand before the throne in the righteousness of Christ. So God, as we look, at to, look into this text, we have no fear, and we are grateful that we have a relationship with you. But God, you can speak to all of us in different ways and produce admonition and conviction. Help us to think soberly about how we live and about what you placed in this Bible. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. This chapter deals with how we handle wealth and riches. It starts off with a parable about a man who has a steward and he has to give an account to him about how he's handled his materials. This gentleman obviously has not done a very good job and now that he's going to be called on the carpet about that, he's doing everything he can 
to try to make up the difference in the money that is owed to his boss. So he goes to people that owe $100 and basically says, look, even though it's 100 just give me 50 I've got to have something. I can't go and stand in front of this man with nothing. And in that situation, the Lord is, is teaching that uh, this man did show a degree of wisdom in that he learned how to get doors open to him. Because the people whose debts he tried to lessen were a lot happier with him because of the fact that he did that. So the Lord said, well, learn to make friends of mammon, which is an old English word describing wealth and riches, which is to simply say to use money in a way that will be beneficial to you, unlike those who are unrighteous and who handle it in ways that are not so edified. Well, he's talking to the, the Pharisees, and in verse 14, he says the Pharisees are very covetous. Now, that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And the reason we call it coveting is typically because whenever you want something that belongs to someone else, that's usually coveting. Usually belongs to somebody else. You see somebody else's spouse. You see somebody else's car. You see somebody else's clothing. And God wants us to be sure that we don't get involved with that kind of a thing. That makes it a sin. He continues the discourse and then he goes into this story with rich, the rich man and Lazarus, which I think is very important. When you have conversations with people, you will notice nine out of ten people that you talk to out here, if you ask them do they believe in God, they'll probably say yes. Now, they may not know him or know anything about him, but they'll probably say yes. If you ask them, do they believe in a devil? They'll say, well, a little superstitious here. Now, don't you think? And then if you say, well, well, do you believe in heaven? Of course I believe in heaven. People go to heaven every day. Well, do you believe there's a place called hell? Well, the God that I serve is a God of love, and he would never send anybody to a place like that. Well, it's obvious Jesus not only knows that the place exists, but Jesus gives a story about that. And what I want you to understand as we look into this is that these two locations are real. And since God is the maker of both of them, he's the one that created the qualifications for entry. I didn't create the qualifications. You didn't create the qualifications. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew that hell was originally prepared for Satan and his angels. However, when you go to the end of the book of Revelation, you quickly discover that whoever's name is not written in the book of life is cast into hell. Then later on, the scripture speaks of hell being thrown into a lake of fire. Note in verse 19 and 20, the contrast in the everyday lifestyle of these two characters. The rich man, clothed in purple, fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. I understand that the word rich is relative to where somebody lives. It doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Someone out here who makes fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year is probably going to live pretty well. I mean, may not be the wealthiest person on the planet, but they're going to live pretty well out here. You put that person in Southern or Northern California, Maryland, Virginia, New York. I mean, they they may qualify for food stamps. So when we say someone is wealthy, that is relative to how a person is uh, maintaining their lifestyle. 
and the food stamp thing might have been an exaggeration, but you, 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 get the, you get the drift of what I'm saying. But verse 19, if he's clothed in purple, you have to understand that purple was a very important color in ancient times. It was a color for royalty. It was a very difficult color to create. You had to use all kinds of dyes. Sometimes they got it from different kinds of creatures in the, in the depths of the sea or the ocean. But nevertheless, it was the kind of a color that royalty wore. That's why Jesus' crucifixion or his judgment, they talked about him being draped in a purple robe in one of the Gospels. Fine linen, of course, has to do with the kinds of garments that people would wear, the materials out of which their clothing would be made. And how do we know when people are doing very well financially? They typically do dress well. Well, fine linen, you know, that, that has to do with, you know, name brand stuff. So for, for someone who years ago was really into Jordash, you had to spend a whole lot of money on a pair of jeans like that. You, you had to spend, spend some cash. For, for you ladies who like purses, I, I would assume if, if you went to Dillard's or JCPenney or something like that and saw a purse that you really Enjoyed and thought was beautiful, you purchase it, you say, This is wonderful. But if somebody came and gave you something, maybe they found at Salvation Army or Goodwill, and you're more of a Dillard's type person or Macy's or something like that, then maybe you wouldn't be so enthused about it. However, I had my wife on a trip one time. We were in the, air, in the airport in London. They had a shop called Hermes. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Hermes. They've got purses in there that cost anywhere from $1,500 to $5,000, to $10,000. She said, I'm going in there to look. I said, get out of there. <laughs> and get right here next to me. Okay. Well, wealth, wealth, wealth allows you comforts that other people may not necessarily be able to have. In fact, the scripture says money is the answer to all things. Uh, somebody that is wealthy has many friends. The poor hath few friends. Little statements like that you run into. Well, also it says here he fared sumptuously every day. So this, this man never had a problem with food. I guarantee you he ate the best cuts of meat. Everybody knows that he ate well. And verse 20 then takes us into a contrast with a man by the name of Lazarus, which in Hebrew under the Old Testament was similar to Eliezer. He was a beggar. Now, chapter earlier, and I think in verse number three, it tells us that the steward said that he, he, he doesn't want to beg because he's ashamed. So in that culture, there was shame attached to begging. Now, all of us have pride. Don't misunderstand me. And I've met people who've had tremendous needs. But they don't want anybody to know about them. See? So we all have pride. But the scripture says here in verse 20, this man was a beggar, so this was a lifestyle. He lived this every day. And it said he was laid at his gate, and he was full of sores. And he had the kind of sores that were open and running. They were leaky. Probably like ulcers and things like that. 
So every day in verse 19, you had a very nice dressed man who was eating very good. And then in verse 20, you had a man that was coming at the gate. Now, he was laid at the gate. I don't know if he was placed there, if he walked there on his own. But I know that as, as poor as he was, according to verse 21, poverty never quenched his desire to be fed. He was hungry. In fact, poverty increased his desire to be fed. You, you see the... The little kids they show sometimes overseas have the flies all around their eyelids. And you see the ones sometimes with the distended bellies. And, and somebody who doesn't know, they'll look at them kids and think, well, oh my goodness, they're eating well. They're not eating well at all. That belly is swollen up because there's nothing in there at all. And this man in verse 21, he wasn't desiring to sit at the table. He wasn't desiring to get into the house. He just simply want the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He knew that the rich man wouldn't eat crumbs. Now, there are a lot of people who will eat stuff that fall on the floor. We won't mention any names. But, you know, kids, of course, and me being one of them, when I was a little kid, I don't know if anybody, any of you ever prayed... That prayer that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible, but it certainly makes you feel good when you're eating something come off the floor. You just grab it, pick it up, say, God made dirt. Dirt don't hurt. Put it in your mouth. Let the saliva work. <laughs> and then you go to chewing down. That's, I mean, we did that all the time as little kids, but, but you can't let anything go to waste. Don't you folks remember all the old church services where the, 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 the little, the, you know, you get up, you put the kids to, to sleep there in the church service and the kids go to sleep. And you push them right up under the, the pew. I mean, that was a good place to be. I'd hear from some older preachers because they said right up right there under the pew is where you found all the little pieces of gum stuck to the bottom <laughs> of the pew. See, OK, I didn't do that, but I'm just saying here's my point, though. Verse 21. Here's a man that was full of sores, so he's in pain. He's poor, he's hungry, and according to verse 21, he doesn't even have the strength to keep the dogs from licking his sores. He can't even fend them off. That's pretty bad. Now, dogs are mentioned numerous times in the Bible, of course. There's the prophecy regarding the death of Jezebel where it says she would be devoured by dogs and they would lick her blood in the street. That's exactly what they did. The only thing the dogs didn't eat were the palms of her hand. The scripture in Proverbs and in Peter talks about uh, when, when a person who backslides, you know, goes back into that old way. They get saved. If they move away from God, they'll go back to what they once were. Peter describes it this way, like a dog that returns to his vomit. So I want you to understand that the dogs in ancient times were not always considered the cleanest of creatures. God said when you came into the temple, you never brought the price of a prostitute, the monies from prostitution, or the price of a dog into the temple. So even though they're man's best friend now, they weren't always looked upon in ways that, that, that made them clean. In fact, in the Middle East today, dogs still are treated in a pretty bad way by, by the Arabs, by the Muslims in, in, in particular. But this man was unable to fend off the dogs. And, and we know that dogs have a scent that's better than ours. But why in the world would dogs want to lick sores? This is what they wanted. He was hungry and the dogs were hungry. 
So everything at this gate is about poverty and about hunger and about desire. So verse 22, it takes us into this other aspect where we move into, into eternity. The beggar died and the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom. In, in verse 21, he's surrounded by dogs, but in verse 22, he's surrounded by angels. Notice how quickly the situation changes. Just because a person has had some difficulties in their life doesn't mean that when they get over to the other side, they're going to have difficulties. There can be great blessings that come to them. Then, of course, it says the rich man died also and was buried. It doesn't tell us the beggar was there. De- uh, excuse me. The beggar was buried. I've been to countries where I've walked down the street and seen dead bodies right in the road, right along the side of the road. People die. Nobody even bothered to pick them up. Or. They take them outside of town and put them out in an open field where the vultures and the wildlife can devour. Just let the body decay. But I guarantee you when a rich man died, he had a very good burial. Some people like to put a whole lot of money in the ground, in a coffin, and in the funeral service. But the scripture says that the rich and the poor meet together. How many of you know when you die, you can't take it with you? You can't. As much as we we do everything we can to cling on you know, to dear life, you know, want to have everything while we're while we're alive. But at some point, you're going to draw your last breath and everything you have clung to and desired and worked for is going to belong to somebody else. That house that you're living in, one day somebody else is going to be there. That's just the way it is. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians very often would take jewelry and put it into the coffin. And uh, the Egyptians, of course, put it in there where they had the mummy at. And they put it in a jar where they had the the bodily organs that they had taken out. And the whole point of that was they thought once you passed into eternity, you'd be able to use your riches to help you in the next life. I can promise you this rich man's wealth didn't help him at all after he died. Verse 22 tells us something very important that God has angels that are available and certainly are used to take people into the presence of the king. Some people know when they're going to die. Some people don't know when they're going to die. But the way this beggar died probably was not good. You know, I, th- I think dying of starvation has to be one of the worst ways to die. A slow death with sickness, painful, excruciating pain. That's not a... That's not a good way to die. But people have been dying like that for centuries and centuries. But what most people have not known is that if someone knows God and has a relationship with God, because we know this is all about a Jewish story because Abraham comes in and they call him Father Abraham. So this is how we know it's all about Jewish people. But the beggar apparently had a relationship with God where the rich man didn't. You would wonder, how can you be a beggar and know God? Well, there are probably a lot of people living under bridges and living in tents that pray and have a relationship with God. But, but think about it. Do you really think Warren Buffett is sitting around tonight wondering whether or not he should have gone to Bible study? I doubt it. And, and I seriously doubt if Bill Gates or, or, or the, the Jeff Bezos or whoever it is that, that runs all that Amazon and stuff, I, I doubt if they're sitting around wondering if, they, if their accountants paid their tithe last week. Not even something important to them. Not maybe, I may be wrong, but I'm just saying it in general and in the main, that, that certainly isn't the case. However, 
When the rich man died, he was buried. I'm sure people stood up and lauded him and praised him, and he did this for society. He was so good for us. He gave this for the community. Let's name the synagogue after him. See, Let's name the synagogue. According to tradition, the rich man's name was Dives. Imagine how many fellowship halls would be named after him today with the donations he could provide. However, when this man died, according to verse 23, in hell, he lift up his eyes. He came to his senses in a place that he never thought he would be. He may not even ever thought it existed. Now, that happens every day. You, you have somebody in the Middle East who has been trained to believe that Jewish people have tails. And that Christians ought to be persecuted. Churches ought to be shut down. And they'll train little kids to get them prepared so that from the time they're little people up, up until they become teenagers, then they'll say, look, we're going to give you an assignment. We want you to put on this bomb vest and go kill as many Jews as you possibly can. And you're going to be ushered into paradise. And the, the virgins are going to uh, serve you while you're there. And sure enough, they got that on their mind and they're motivated and they're praying their prayers. And they go to the bus stop, got their bomb vest and everything on they have Multitudes of Jewish people standing there. They get on the bus looking like an average Israeli citizen. Sit down on the bus and here you got grandmothers talking about what they did over the weekend. Soldiers returning to base. Young people catching the bus to school. Then a young man or young woman stands up on the bus and shouts, Allahu Akbar. Hits the button. Ball of fire appears. Bus jumps up seven or eight feet off the ground. Bone fragments and pieces of skin going in every direction. There's a, a rush of screams from the outside, and I'm telling you, the next breath the, the bomber takes is not in a place that he expected to go. He's under the impression that he's going into paradise where there are flowing rivers and angels that are going to be there and virgins to look after him. Here's a rich man, didn't do anything like that, but here's what the scripture says about him. In hell, he lifted up his eyes. Yeah. So the principle is simple. Jesus believed in hell. He believed it existed at the time he was teaching this story. And if God could, I don't believe he will, but if God could <clears throat> just pull back this carpet the way you pull back the top of a, a sardine can or something and just give us all a glimpse of hell for about 10 seconds and just let a few of those burning embers tickle the bottoms of our feet, it'll change how we live. We'll change. Because we, we, we think about that. Now, I'm, not, I'm not telling you all this because I want you to spend all night meditating on how you think people are being tormented. That's not the whole point. But, but my point is, is, is simple. Uh, this is an eternal place. And whether whether the, the journalists and the secularists and other people believe in it or not, every baby that comes into this world has an eternity. Every human on this planet has an eternity. Animals, insects, other creatures, mammals cannot do it other than human beings. We are the only, only creatures on the planet that are able to give birth to that which is eternal. Only creatures. You ought to be glad there won't be any roaches in heaven. So verse 23, <clears throat> Be, being in torment, so we know it's not a happy place. 
And he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So we learn something else now about a person who's in eternity and in hell. They are able to see. Their faculties remain. They're able to see and they even are able to recognize individuals. Because he remember, Abraham lived some 1800 years before Jesus who told this story. We don't know when the rich man died. But think about that. If, if he knows who Abraham is, then once we get over on the other side, supernaturally, we have the ability to understand who folks are. You'll know Paul. You'll recognize Isaiah. This man obviously knew who Lazarus was because he had a memory of the man at the gate. Isn't that interesting? Didn't have time for him during his life. But now that he's dead and he's in hell, now he has special requests for Lazarus. Sometimes the people you overlook and neglect and disregard are people that later on you wish you had a relationship with. So be careful about how <clears throat> you interact with people. They may not be as bad off as you think because the, the, Lazarus had something in his heart the rich man didn't have, and that was the knowledge of God. Verse 24, so he cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now see, he's looking for mercy. That, that's all Lazarus wanted every day at the gate. So be careful when you come in contact with, with beggars. Uh, don't be offended, but, you know, don't be gullible. I, I've certainly been driving in places and had people run up to my windshield real fast, and you didn't want them at your windshield, and they spray something on it, and they go to wipe it, and they're hoping after they do that, you know, you give them a quarter, stick a dollar out there, something like that. And, of course, that, that's how some of them live. But I also know from what I've seen in travels, that there have been people who all day long stay on the street as beggars, then at the end of the day go home to a wonderful apartment. I mean, goodness, I mean, certain corners that you work, you see them folks out there fighting with people because you're working my turf, they're making three, four, five hundred dollars at that intersection every single day. Cash money. There have been a lot of stories of people who've died... They've gone into trailer uh, parks and found somebody who everybody thought was homeless, and that mattress and them drawers are stuffed, filled with money. See, a whole lot of money. Lots of dollar bills. So when, when we think of uh, people who are, who are poor and having difficulties, we, we certainly don't want to be the, the kind of folks that mistreat them. Mercy is something that we all like to have extended to us, and we should share it with other people. But this man now, he's in a place where mercy isn't going to be given. He said, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water. Because, see, he remembers what water was like. So the memory is there. He, he, he can remember what this tasted like, how it was cool and refreshing. He says, I'm tormented in the flame. So we know what the, the issue here is. I've told you before about uh, John Hagee uh, preaching and he said he had an evangelist preaching a revival for him one time. And this, this man was up ministering in an auditorium and the man jumped up angry at the preacher because he's preaching on heaven and hell and all that. And he shook his fist at him and said, I'm tired of you Bible thumping preachers talking to us about heaven and hell and everything's black and white and right and wrong and there's no gray. And he stormed out of that auditorium in front of everybody making all of that noise. A few days later, Hagee gets a phone call 
And this gentleman's in the hospital now. So Hagee and the evangelist go to the hospital, and that man, he's been in a terribly bad fire. He's been burned and everything like that. So he's kind of going in and out of consciousness. So when he, when, he, when he would wake up, he would go to screaming and yelling, and then after a few moments, then he kind of settled down and just go unconscious again. Well, when Hagee and that evangelist walked in, they got near the bed, and he came to, and he started screaming, Preacher, preacher, save me, save me. I can feel the fire. I can feel the fire. And he's grabbing at their coattails, trying to hold on to them, and then he faint. Well, he, he came to them, was doing all that screaming. They led him to Christ, and then he just kind of settled down peacefully, and then died. But here was a man that whatever was going on in his life, when he's drifting in and out, hell became a reality to him. He didn't want, he, he didn't want to go. So the, the, the man here in verse 24, he, he understands what he's lost and he knows what he has. So in verse 25, Abraham's response to him was, son, don't you remember? See, the memory is there. That in your lifetime you received good things. I think that's probably one of the most troubling things about hell is to be there and know that you had an opportunity to do something different. And to be there and know that there's another place where you could have been and you cannot even get there. Yeah, have a memory of heaven. So he said in your life you received good things. So God does not condemn the possession of wealth and eating good. In fact, the Lord calls it good. Well, if your table is laden every day with lots of food, that's a nice thing. If you're able to uh, dress nicely, put on good clothes, that's wonderful. But he says of Lazarus, he received evil things. What did he have? He had poverty, and he had sores and was sick. So that's, that's certainly never been the plan of God for anybody to have that. In the beginning, God made man, and of course, after six days of creation, you know, he stepped back, looked at everything, and said, this is good. This is good. But then in verse 25, the Lord says, everything now has flipped in reverse because now you who one time were comforted are now tormented. And this man who was having a bad time is now comforted. That shows you how things can change. Now, I wonder when the when the rich man's funeral occurred and he passed away, I wonder how many of them people honestly knew that man was lost. Think about that. Because when we have funerals and they roll the, the, the casket into the place and I've got to stand in front of people, every time I usually say that this coffin right here is a sign to everybody that tomorrow isn't promised to you. It's not promised to you. And the funeral is not for the decedent. It's for everybody else that's still around. So now I've got family members and friends who never darken the door of any kind of church or funeral chapel. So I preach to them like heaven and hell depends on everything I have to say. Because I may not see them again. But, but imagine that. Imagine the numbers of people out here and around the world where they've had funerals and a preacher said they went to heaven because they cut the grass at church. Surely this this one went to heaven. Their, their grandparent laid the cornerstone here at this church right here. And while they're going through all of that, have no idea 
that the person who's dead wished that they could come back and respond to an altar call one more time. Or pick the Bible up and believe it. So verse 26, the Lord said, and beside this, uh, there's this great gulf between you and me. So we, well, let me say this. Abraham's bosom is just a euphemism for heaven. Now, if you go back to Luke chapter 13, I'll show you that Jesus knew that these folks were with the king there in heaven. Because in Luke 13, notice verse 27, he says, but he shall say, I tell you, uh, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the what? Kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. So Abraham's bosom was was a, a euphemism to describe the presence of God, heaven. To be with the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with him. And wherever this, um, I don't want to say, this gulf was, Obviously, when you're in eternity, you can see afar off. It's not like looking down the street. Everything changes when you get into eternity. And the description of it, when he says in hell, he lifted up his eyes. I don't know if he's just looking straight across and there's a gully in between them. Or if he's looking upward and Abraham and, and, uh, and Lazarus are somewhat up there looking down. I have no idea of the, the direction of all of this. But I can tell you, we know that when... Paul had his vision in Corinthians. He talked about being caught up to the third heaven, going up, being caught up in the paradise, going up. So where Abraham and Lazarus was, was wonderful. Where this man, the rich man, was at was absolutely terrible. But nobody can go back and forth. Now, if you're in heaven, do you think you'd want to travel over there anyhow? I have not. I'm not going to have any desire over there to go. But the sad thing about uh, this is you, you look at it, and here's a man in hell wishes he was over there. But Abraham and Lazarus not saying we're trying to get to where you are. But they see him. They recognize him. They know who he is. And the memory that, that Lazarus has of him, Lazarus isn't over there full of offense and anger. See, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. And when we get there, we're going to enjoy that. The scripture talks about streets of gold, a beautiful foundation, the beautiful stones and all of that, a tree with leaves of healing, no sickness, no disease, won't be any reason for weeping over there, no need for a sun because the the, the S-O-N is going to provide the light for all of New Jerusalem. So the wonders of heaven are going to be so great. And when you contrast it to hell, where the worm dies not, where there's darkness, eternal torment, you, you can see why Jesus is using this to try to help the covetous people to see that you ought to make a better, better use of your time. So in verse 27, then he said, I pray thee, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Now think about this. Uh, during his life, the rich man wasn't interested in God, but all of a sudden now he's evangelistic. And he's interested in witnessing. And now he's concerned about his father's house and their spiritual condition. He's now interested in the souls of his sibling. We ought to be concerned about that now. 
I'll wait till after we've passed away. He said, I've got five brethren, and I need you to go testify to them. So it's obvious that the five brethren were just like him. He didn't care anything about God when he was alive, and he's got five siblings that are just like him, likely wealthy, and God isn't on their radar. Now, you, you don't have to be antagonistic to God as a sinner. You can just be indifferent. There's some people, you know, they don't care. If, if you want to be religious, they don't care. That's, that's your thing. That's fine with them. But that's just not for me. I'm not going to try to stop you from going to church and reading your Bible and listening to Christian music, but I'm just saying that's just not for me. They're just indifferent. But God takes all indifference as hostility because the Scripture says to be to be a friend of this world is to be an enemy of God. And the man or woman that chooses to say, well, I don't prefer to serve God or to walk with him, that condition, God takes that as an act of war against him. Because it's sin. It's a transgression of the commandment. How many times have we heard fathers say, well, look, I'm not going to go to church. I don't, I'm not interested in church. But if you want to take the kids, that's just you know, religious things for you and, the, you and the kids. You can go. But I'm not going. And they think, well, you know, I'm not hindering my family at all. Well, actually, you are. Actually, you are. Because you're part of the problem. You're, you're fighting against God. And sometimes it's in reverse. Sometimes a wife will say that. And they say, look, if you want to go to church, you can. Go on your own, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not going myself. And we have a tendency to think, well, look, I follow the golden rule. I, I try to treat people nice. I try to walk in love to people, try to treat people the way I want them to treat me. And it just seems to me if I do all of those things, God has to accept me. You really don't think God will let somebody like me go to a bad place like hell. I mean, look, I've been taking care of grandma for a long time. And when grandma needs to be bathed, I bathe grandma. When she needs to go shopping, I go shopping. And when grandma had to move from her home in with us, I was the one that overseen the auction at her place. A good person like me, do you really think your mom and dad's going to be lost? I mean, I don't know what they're telling you down at that church, but religion isn't quite like that. There are a lot of people in this world that don't believe in Jesus. See, that kind of a thing. But come back to it. The man in hell says, I've got five brothers, sin Lazarus, that they also will not come to this place of torment. So, so he knows they're coming. Okay. <laughs> he sees the trajectory of their life. He knows they're coming. So he said, I'm trying to stop this. That's what this story is all about. Jesus is trying to show the Pharisees, you are on a, a, a road that is a dead end. And on the other end of the sign, there's a cliff, and you're going to fall off, and it's going to be terrible for you when you get into eternity. And I'm telling you this story to show you, Pharisees, as wealthy and as prideful and as covetous as you are, to change your life. You don't have to go to a place like this. So Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. That is to say they have scripture, because they had Genesis through Malachi. And the Lord is telling them, God has preserved his inspired word. His word has been inscribed so that people in all the generations would have it. But they won't even believe the scripture. So the man says, no, 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 no. If, if, if Lazarus comes back from the grave and goes, they'll believe. They'll believe. Now think about that. The Lord is saying, if people don't believe the Bible, they probably won't believe a miracle. 
Some people, if they see a miracle, here's what they'll do. They'll rationalize it. They'll take all the supernatural out of it and make it a natural thing. And that's why we have so many preachers and Bible commentaries that tell you, I know the scripture says Jesus was raised from the dead, but he really never died on the cross. He was kind of just unconscious for a while. See? Or when it says that they parted, the Lord parted the water of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel passed through in the night, and the east wind blew the waters back so that they became a wall on either side, and the people marched over supernaturally, they'll say, no, that's not really what happened. The Red Sea doesn't mean Red Sea, it means a sea of reeds. And so they crossed over in a marshy area, and the water couldn't have been no more than probably two or three, two or three feet deep. And, and, and that's how they made it to the other side. And people believe that. They, they want to take the miracle out of it. And the Lord said, anyone who doesn't believe the scriptures is likely not going to believe a miracle. So what do you believe about the Bible? Are you going to let people rob you of your faith in scripture? Will you let somebody come along and say to you, I'm not believing in some old 2,000 year old old fashioned book with antiquated stories and accounts and reports of all of these supernatural legends? You know, this stuff didn't come to pass. Come on, it's the 21st century. We put people on the moon and we got robotic material that's that's up on Mars. And don't you know, we've got subs that. Go down into the depths of the ocean. Now, you really trying to tell me you think somebody today has a devil inside them and needs to be cast out? See? Well, yeah. These are the arguments that we face all the time. But I promise you, there are no atheists in hell. I don't want. Everybody there knows why they're there, and they know who made the place. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Folks are angry because they are there. So let me let me kind of kind of summarize this then. What what kind of people will be down here? People like the rich man, people that have their own philosophy of life. I don't need to be a Christian. I mean, after all, I can I can serve any God that I want. I can be Buddhist. Why would you want to be Buddhist? Buddhists don't even believe in the personal existence of God. Well, I can be a Hindu. Hindus have millions of gods. That's all the more reason why not to be one. You don't even know which one you're serving. Can't even put a name to him to even know anything about his attributes. Or someone could say, well, well, I'm just really not into any kind of God. I just want to follow all the great teachers of the world. Well, all teachers die. But even when you die, you're going to have an eternity. What will you do with that eternity? People that are in, in hell are people that, like this rich man, had their own philosophy of life. They created it for themselves, and they said, I can do and be whatever I want. I don't have to follow anybody's routine. That's who's there. Then you have people there also who have come to the conclusion that they're just not going to believe at all. There is no God. Then they get there and realize there is. Let's not wait until we pass away and go into eternity to start thinking about being evangelistic or being a witness. This is serious business. I didn't dwell a whole lot on the torments and stuff like that and go on all the stuff that the scripture describes about all that because I think the story is pretty self-explanatory. 
We don't want to be there. We don't want our family members there. We don't want our relatives. Our we don't even, I don't want my worst enemy to go to this place. You understand that? That's why Jesus said pray for your enemies. Uh, years ago, Tiff and I used to go to a preacher's convention in Beaumont, Texas. There was a great Assemblies of God preacher named Bert Clendenin. Preached for about 60 years. Great, great ministry. But there were about a thousand of us holiness preachers that would gather together in a big hotel down there. But he told a story that, that remains with me about how he had to go visit a man in the hospital one time and had cancer in his mouth, cancer of the tongue. And said that tongue had swelled up so that he couldn't close his mouth. And said that thing just had sores and everything on it, and it was just hanging out of his mouth, you know, just inch, a lot of inches hanging out of there. And he said he laid there just groaning and in pain. And he said as a pastor, he was called in there to pray with this man. He said when he got in there, he, he knew the man was, was in agony, and he, and he said he didn't, didn't stay there long, but he said he, he got there, grabbed the man's hand, and then he prayed a prayer for him, simple prayer. But he said at the conclusion of that prayer, he said he had this impression in his heart as he prayed for that man in all that pain, and he said he, he really believed God was speaking to his heart and said these words, there's not a man or woman in hell that wouldn't trade places with him for five minutes. Five minutes. As much pain and agony as he was in with that cancer, anybody in this place where the rich man was at would trade places with him for just a few moments. So we don't want to wait to become witnesses after we've passed away. This story should help us think differently about our family and our friends, about how we live. I've told parents when they've said to me, well, you know, Pastor, you got to understand, I, I try to witness to some of my family, try to witness to my adult kids. They, they sometimes, they don't want to hear what I have to say, which is very often uh, the case. However, you'll feel terrible and have regrets if you don't say something and something happens to them. You'll wish you just had another opportunity to say, why don't you go to a church where they preach the Bible? Come with us to church. Do you read your Bible? Sometimes that Christmas gift that you think would be offensive to that grandchild, which would be a Bible, sometimes that's what they need. Because in a time of trouble, that'll be the thing they reach for that's right next to that lampstand, and they'll pull it out when nobody else knows that they're looking, and they'll start looking through that, and it could be something that God the Holy Ghost could use to bring conviction upon them, and you'll have no idea it's even taking place. Sometimes it'll happen when they're drunk. Sometimes it'll happen when they're messed up and dealing with drugs, but they'll pull that thing out and read it, and may just go to crying, and you have no idea. So we, we've got to give God opportunities to reach our family. And opportunities to reach our, uh, our friends. We, we don't have to be overbearing. You don't have to quote chapter and verse when you're talking to people. But you can let your conversation be seasoned with grace. And people will be blessed by that. So it's beautiful that Jesus put this, this story in here. And, and I'm thankful that, uh, for that. You know, we preaching one time in Red Cloud on the subject of hell on a Sunday morning. And one of the teenage girls listened to that message, came down, 
And that altar got down on her knees and just wept and cried, gave her heart to the Lord. She's now a missionary in Central America now. Just because of a message. Just because of a message. This is not the kind of a topic that the average pastor will touch on. Some will act like it's not in the Bible. But every now and then, we kind of need one of these messages and studies to know the reality of what everybody is facing. Everybody has an eternity, and we hope and pray that people will get this thing settled the right way beforehand. A lot of those old songs that, that they... Uh, Saying about the old account was settled long ago. I thank God for that. See? And, and, and we're happy that, that this thing was settled at the cross 2,000 years ago. Amen? Amen. So when you put your head, head on the pillow tonight, you don't have to be insecure about what's going to happen to you. I know what's going to happen if I draw my last breath this evening. I'll be absent from this body, but I'll be with him. And by everybody down here shouting and running around church at the funeral and praising the Lord and saying, oh, goodness, we miss pastor and all of that. I'll be dancing around heaven, having a wonderful time saying, oh, look at them go. I'm telling you, they having as much fun as I am up here. Goodness, praise the Lord. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful, we're grateful tonight that we could look into the scripture, the very sobering thing. But nevertheless, it's something that we need to hear from time to time. And, Father, we're happy that our names are written in the book of life. Father, if anybody has any questions at all in relation to this, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, deal with every heart tonight as we're laying in that bed, even as you've started the process now. But we love you, we worship you, we honor you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.